Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. So welcome to another edition of the Revelation Project Podcast. Today, I'm here with Dr. Allison McGregor, who is a physician, researcher, writer, and advocate for women's health. She is the director for the Division of Sex and Gender in Emergency Medicine for the Department of Emergency Medicine at Alpert Medical School of Brown University. She is a TED speaker with over 1.6 million views and recently published her book, Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It. Hello, Allison. Hello. Thank you for having me. Ah, oh, thank you for being here. And congratulations on the publication of this very important book. Thank you. I have been thrilled to finally have it out there and to have conversations like this with you to spread the word of how women can really take a hold of their own medical world. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say, I know that you and I spoke a little bit before this, and this is actually a subject that's near and dear to my heart, because it wasn't until I had a health crisis about 11 years ago that I started really kind of cluing in to how women are really have been largely ignored in the medical community since really the beginning of Western medicine. Yes, that is that is accurate. It's amazing. I mean, when, when I first discuss that point with people, people seem to be shocked. Like they thought that medicine took into account that men and women might be different and uh, nothing could really be farther from the truth. And I would love to kind of hear a little bit of background because while I want to dive right in, I'm also super curious, what got you interested in the differences because what I make up is like you went to medical school and that somewhere along the line you were like, wait, hold the phone. But I don't know if that's true. Yeah, um, that's actually very true and an acute way of, of thinking about it. I did. So I, you know, really always wanted to become a physician. And so I spent, you know, many years uh, memorizing and learning and checking boxes and studying and, you know, medical school residency, the whole thing. And uh, and I was thrilled to, to do it. And I loved emergency medicine. And so while I was finishing my emergency medicine residency at Brown University, I really wanted to stay there as faculty. This is my home state. And I thought it would be just wonderful to be able to give back and care for, you know, patients that from my hometown. And so as I started to really work on getting a faculty position, because it's an academic institution, there's, um, you know, an expectation that you do research as well. So you give back, you teach, you do research, and you have clinical practice. And so as I was thinking about what I wanted wanted to concentrate on, I've always been uh, interested in women's issues, you know, thinking about all the work that the women of the 1960s, 1970s did for women to have uh, equal rights, at least reproductive rights. And I sort of always followed along and, you know, felt grateful for their work. So I thought, well, let me do something to help 
uh, improve the health of women. Let me focus on women. And as I started to look for mentees and advisors and create some research projects, I started to realize that a lot of the feedback that I was receiving was that everyone thought I meant obstetrics and gynecology. (laughs) I'm sorry for laughing so hard, but it's so, oh gosh, I'm just putting, I'm like shaking my head over here. Yes. Okay. Of course. Yes, it was. It was this it was equated with that. And so, and I, I spent all this time being trained in emergency medicine and I see women come in with lots of different emergencies. They don't always come in for a problem with their reproductive health. And so as I became the sort of the one known during the shift, oh, you know, Dr. McGregor's here. There's a woman that needs a pelvic exam. I'm sure she'd be happy to do it. And I was like, just because I'm interested in women's health, it doesn't mean that that that's that's the only definition of that. So, so that's when I started to really dive in and I thought there's something that's wrong here that needs to be investigated. And this was, you know, about 15 years ago or so. So this was about the time that cardiovascular literature was coming out and saying that women have different ways of presenting with heart disease. And at that time, they were, it was coined atypical presentations that women would have. Oh my goodness. And so I, Yeah. And so I thought, you know, if women have a, you know, a different way of presenting for heart attacks, let's think about that because that is something that's anatomically and physiologically related to different genes and hormones and a different makeup. And so if that's the case for heart disease, what about all the other conditions that I see on a daily basis? Wow, what a revelation, huh? Uh, it's it has it is, and it's that's why you know when, when I started to study this, I just thought that you know I wanted to spread the news as quickly as possible. I was like, I discovered something, hey, hey, and people were just like, what are you know what are you talking about? It, it, it's been a long road. I bet because you know I love this story about how you know you started kind of really trying to focus in on mentors and advisors and really starting to get that there were none there are none it's you Allison right you know it's like the, the buck stops here baby you know I love I love kind of the like the dawning amazement and horror you must have felt kind of at the same time but also what an incredible opportunity not only for you but for women. So I know I told you a little bit, but I think again, back 11 years ago, when I went through a a really major health crisis, one of the things that kept coming up for me over and over again was how frustrated I felt, how I was going to say stepped over. And what I mean by that is that whatever, however I was communicating, whether I would say I feel it or there's something wrong and I know it or whatever, however I was communicating, it was was like I felt like kind of the equivalent of getting a pat on the head versus feeling really heard or listened to or taken seriously. And that was not just one doctor or specialist. This was specialist after specialist. And of course, it did end up being an endocrine issue, which again is all very much, as you know, complex hormone metabolism related and of, you know, has a, a pretty complex 
background. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, but yet I just struggled in trying to get feel heard, trying to get more information for myself. And one of the discoveries that I made at that point was really also understanding that a lot of even the the medication that's prescribed is, you know, was prescribed based on like a 160 pound male. So there's a lot there. I know that this is what women are experiencing and it it is it needs to change. So, you know, it is a system-wide problem because when doctors are in medical school, they are learning male pattern disease. They are learning what heart attacks feel like in a man, what stroke feels like in a man. They are learning male bodies. If you look at anatomy uh, text, you know, it's the male body and then, you know, some reproductive organs, you know, at the end of the chapter, it's always just been like the reproductive add-on. So what's happened is when you go to the doctor, when you finally stop what you're doing, uh, you know, throughout the day and you, you go into the medical care system, they have been trained to look for male pattern diseases. So they are not going to recognize, you know, what you are describing because you don't fit the puzzle piece. And it's not necessarily that the, because the doctor is necessarily male or female, it's the entire system was built on an understanding of male physiology. And so when you think about the types of things that women experience more often, like autoimmune diseases, like endocrine diseases, like hormone-related conditions, because those are not as prominent in men, they haven't been studied that much. And so not only are we not discovering the, the classics in women, we have not really scratched the surface on all of the other conditions that women suffer from proportionately more than men. The other thing I hear you saying is that it's it's really taken up until now to really start to look at all of the ways in which there's potentially a whole nother range of diagnostic testing, a whole different measurement system that can be used to evaluate based on how a woman communicates versus how a a male communicates. Like there's pretty much what I'm hearing you say is that it's really ground zero where what you're starting to do is identify all the ways in which, you know, the medical community can start to really evaluate, diagnose, and treat women moving forward? We need to have a new um, model of disease. So our model has been male animals, male cells, male individuals, mostly white, healthy males. And so with that, that has really, it's given us what we understand right now as far as um, health and disease. But now that we are realizing that if you discover a sex difference here, say for instance, a drug Uh, given to a man and then a drug given to a woman and that having different concentrations, different side effects, different toxicities. If you discover that once, then you have to really look at it in its entirety. So all medication needs to be looked at. All diagnostic tests need to be looked at in the way of men versus women. And we are not there yet. Right now we are at the 
trying to reveal that these sex differences exist and then start to look at why. Is that medication uh, dosing different because of the way of uh, metabolism of drugs? Is it because of body fat percentages? Is it because of liver enzymes? Is it because of hormones? And that's sort of how this science is developing. But when if you think about it, most of our basic research has been based on men. And so what happens is the next hypothesis is based on the last five experiments that were done in men. And it's going to be difficult to all of a sudden say, I want to include women. And I just want to be really clear about the this particular part is if you look at a study and or if someone says that, oh, there's this new drug and it was studied in both men and women. Okay, well, what's the percentage? Well, even if it was 50% men and 50% women, if they were combined, that is not good enough because sometimes a woman will have a particular effect and the male will have the opposite effect. And when you combine them, you are negating that effect. So, so that is something that we now know is really important. It's about analyzing the data to see if there are differences between men and women. Is it true that a lot of the way that testing or analysis has been done is based on, I'm imagining, cost factors and other things? Okay, so that's a good point. Yes, if you want to look at sex differences in your data set, you will have to enroll more people, not always necessarily double the amount, but more people enough to have a a solid uh, um, statistical analysis, right? So yes, that does cost more. But think about it, right? What's the cost of having a drug be withdrawn from the market after prescribed to women for 20 years at the wrong dose uh. and having and having, you know, horrible uh, adverse reactions to it like Ambien. Ambien is a classic example. If you look at what the cost of first designing a drug and getting it all the way to the market, it's been quoted to cost about $1 billion and takes about 14 years. So now that drug is available to be prescribed, say like Ambien, most of the studies were done on men. Guess who was prescribed the drug for sleep aids? Women, because women have more uh, diagnosis of insomnia and sleep disturbances. So the drug was prescribed for women for over 20 Mm. years at double the dose. When you look at, um, when you actually gave that one dose to a male and you gave that same dose to a female, women had two times the serum concentration in the following morning. So they were getting into car accidents. They were drowsy. They were making mistakes that could have cost their life or, you know, the health of someone else. And so to me, that cost is really much larger than the cost of initially enrolling women into the study. Wow. Yeah. Well, and you said that Ambien is probably just one of many, many examples of how this plays out in the real world. Oh, yeah. I mean, most of, you know, the medications, you know, since they've been tested on men and approved based on male physiology, we have not even looked at what hormones like estrogen have an effect we don't even consider the menstrual cycle or if someone's taking you know hormones how does that affect the metabolism of drugs and so there are examples there where there are certain drugs that during certain times in the menstrual cycle will drop down to levels that aren't effective 
and then pop up again after. And so what are the consequences for that woman during that period of time in her menstrual cycle? And so those can be very significant. And so we need to start getting more complicated. We have the ability now to get complicated in our science, in our experiments. We should be enrolling both men and women. We should be looking at the effects of estrogen on the conditions, you know, at the very least. At the very least, absolutely. And what's coming up is I'm wondering if you are finding, I know that initially it was as you were kind of looking for these mentors and advisors that it, they were hard to come by. But I'm wondering if like, since you've really now established this and written the book, if you've got a lot of interest, a lot of buy-in, I'm wondering like, God, this would open up a whole new world of requests around funding and how you interact with it, just everything. Like you now yes. become a mouthpiece and an advocate in all kinds of ways. And it has really. There's, you know, I, you know, I felt very alone when I first started discovering this and researching it. But since then, I have, you know, created a, a wonderfully collaborative network throughout the U.S. and across the, you know, the globe, uh, where we are really sharing our collective knowledge base on this and. Part of that has been even through the, the NIH. So the NIH has the Office of Research on Women's Health. And that office has really worked to bring this issue into the forefront. So they have actually, since several years now, have a specific rule that if you apply for NIH funding, you must include biological sex in your application. And so you must put that into the experiment or the trial or whatever you're studying. That has really helped us, us, you know, just like the everybody, um, gain more knowledge of what, uh, where and, and what the uh, sex differences are, are coming up. However, you know, the NIH is, it's the flagship for the U.S. in funding, but it's not the only funding mechanism. So there's still one of the things I try to encourage everyone is uh, is that if you are part of an educational committee, if you are, um, in order to have a study approved, it has to go through an institutional review board. If you are a peer review for a journal, if you're an editor for a journal, all of these areas should now be making sure that before a study gets funded, before it gets approved, before it enrolls anybody, before it gets published, there are many spots along the way where someone could say, hey, wait a minute, where are the women in this? And was this analyzed to determine if there are important differences? Mm. So that's really where I think, you know, one piece that we could all collectively try to make a difference. Yeah, it's just, it's just amazing to me as I sit here listening, just how really women's issues and women's voices and you know, all of the ways that we've just really been marginalized, you know, in, in so many ways across the board in our, in our, throughout our culture, our institutions, our governments, right? It's like, the, I'm just kind of marveling at how no, you know, sector is kind of going untouched in this realm, that women's voices and, and are t starting to take priority in this way. And it's just wonderful. It just really occurs to me as like, yes, I know we have a long way to go. But it, I'm just so happy that, you know, women like you are out there who have just discovered such a gaping hole in how we are really suited or not to really determine 
you know, the, the health and welfare of our community members at like such a, at such a vital level. I do finally feel uh, that it is inevitable. I didn't always feel that way, but now I do believe that scientists and doctors and educators really want to do the right thing. They go into science and medicine to help people to learn discoveries. And so I feel as though it was just unquestioned state of being. It was just, this is the way things have always been done. So this is how we do it. And um, once once we can showcase where and when that, that this has not been a good uh, effect on health of women, then I would think that, and I've experienced that, that people are open to to doing it correctly, open to actually taking a lot of this into account. But because there are so many pieces of the puzzle from from researchers to to journal editors to the clinical care to educating our healthcare providers there's so much that needs to be updated that it's it's taken a long time but i do feel as though that we all have this role that we can play and especially you know the reason why i wrote sex matters is to not only make this into something that people are more aware of. But actually, even if you are not on any committees or or you don't have access to, to, you're not in healthcare in any way, you are still a patient. And I'm sure that you've experienced, you know, similar conditions and as you just, you know, describe yourself, what you felt like you weren't heard. So that's where I try to give women in general, just some very basic guidelines of how to make sure that when you are in the healthcare system, you are getting the best care that you can, even under the circumstances. Well, and that's, that's actually the direction I wanted to head with you, Allison, is really kind of get gaining a bit more understanding here and helping our audience to really understand, like, I would love to hear more about the differences in for instance, in how some women present and how some men present, but also other things that you've discovered along the way and how women can kind of follow this guideline that you're talking about to make sure that they're really advocating for themselves properly. So the first thing I like to make sure that women know is to really take control, take ownership of the accuracy of your own personal medical record. So um, most most women um, seek care by multiple physicians. And because they are often not understood or not diagnosed early on, they are often sent to lots of specialists. Oh, you know, if you have a pain in your chest, oh, this, you know, you go to a cardiologist, this isn't your heart, you should go to a lung specialist, go to the lung specialist, this isn't your lungs, it's your stomach, you go to, and everyone's trying and doing tests and throwing medication at you. And so this can become very frustrating. So making sure that you have have control of all the things that you have, uh, you keep record of the medications, the dosing, whether they're generic or what tests you've had, because you don't want to have these expensive and sometimes risky procedures over and over again. And so to really sort of take ownership and then to make sure that you ask lots of questions. I, I like to tell women t- they should feel empowered to Google search. And then when you go to the doctor, have a conversation about what you discovered. It's you look at your physician as a very well informed 
a consultant in your own health. So, you know, no longer are the days of you just go to the doctor or the doctor just, you know, you tell them what's going on and they just write, you know, a prescription, hand it to you and leave. You need to have some sort of understanding. You need to ask them, has this study, has this drug been studied in women? Should I have a different dose? Should I do something different during my menstrual cycle? You know, lots of these, these, uh, questions that um, that they can ask, and then also to bring an advocate. You know, I like to tell women to you know be one and bring one because most of the time the health literacy, uh, especially if you're not in healthcare, you don't really have an understanding of the vocabulary. It's it's not that it's complicated; it's just it's its own vocabulary. And so doctors and nurses and healthcare providers are talking about things, and they may not translate that to you, especially if you're upset if you are in pain. And so having someone say, no, this is not her panic attack. This is not anxiety. She's, I know her and she's, this is something different. She's in a lot, you know, this is very distressful and they can just help remember some of the conversation. It's all things like that, that I think will help women feel empowered in that situation. I would imagine that a lot of this is also covered in in your book. As I'm writing the questions down, I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, I should almost like type something out and print it so so that I can make sure it's like check, check to make sure that I've, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and we do it um, near the end of the book. I have a whole form that you can use to make it simple. But even if you don't, you know, go to the point of doing that, just taking a picture with your with your phone of your medications, you know, it's it's whatever information that you you have um, can be helpful. You had mentioned, Allison, like the whole idea of like these costly procedures and having medications thrown at you. I I wondered if you could kind of say more about that in general, because I I find that so many women I know have, mm, it's almost like that some of these um, diagnostics or like to figure out what's wrong can sometimes take years. And I feel like, is there something they could have done or said that might have sped it up? Do you, do you know what I mean? I do. And I um, I certainly don't think anybody who is a patient is to blame. So it's really, it's up to the healthcare world to, to do the best possible uh, for their patients. However, there's, you know, there's a lot of variety in the world and not all doctors are meant to be your doctor. So uh, making sure that you find one that you feel as though um, has your best interest and is listening to you. But a part of the problem is, is with women who are not diagnosed right away because they are presenting in a way that the doctors don't recognize, uh, there becomes like this emotional fatigue. So the woman you know, is now at her third specialist and she's like trying to tell the story again. And that's, and that person is like, Oh, you've been to all these specialists. What am I supposed to do now? You know, if they can't figure it out, how am I supposed to figure it out? And so on both the doctor and the physician, it becomes a very frustrating issue. So as we start to gear up and learn new evidence and come up with more specific treatments that will help and be individualized to women, then, you know, I think that we'll start to see some improvement. But in the meantime, by just bringing up some of these issues to your physician, by just saying, hey, I, I heard that women have different presentations of heart disease. Do you think that's some, something I'm experiencing right now? That would actually start to have a conversation. And that doctor would say, oh, you know, you're right. Let me kind of, l- let me look up if you, if you should have a different dose of that medication. Or let me see if we have the ability to look for different 
causes of heart disease in women. And so what I'm hoping to do is not have it be considered top down. So funding agencies and doctors and deans and uh, medical schools telling everyone what to do, but to really sort of empower women at large to be able to start to create this change each encounter that they may have. Yeah, I love that. It's so important. And it's occurring to me that not only do we as women have to take responsibility and really get curious and and ask, you know, ask the right questions. But also that what I'm hearing is that there's kind of also a partnership in the doctor patient relationship and really kind of bringing this issue, this very, very kind of glaring omission in the history of medicine to the surface of kind of the the table, so to speak, and really just almost talk through. I can only imagine me, the next doctor's appointment, just really getting curious with my own endocrinologist, who's a woman and who's amazing. She's actually very much on the front lines of some really interesting clinical trials around something called LDN for autoimmune immune issues for a lot of her female patients. And just just kind of really even bringing this up in conversation and, and saying like, gosh, what's your experience in not having so much data around, you know, women? And where do you see that changing just as a as a patient yeah. to doctor relationship? Yes, exactly, exactly. And so one of the things that I really also really encourage is to listen, your doctor cannot really read your mind. I mean, some may and those are special, hang on to them. But in general, you need to be really open about what is your motive for the doctor visit. So if you are uh, very frustrated and uh, you, you know, you just, you're in, uncomfortable, you come into the emergency department, again, this is your third time in two weeks. And what I usually say is, is okay, what is your goal for this visit? Do you just want to feel um, less pain for a couple hours? Do you want, are you here for a diagnosis? Did you look up a certain test that you think that you should have? Because we could talk about whether it's actually right for you. Do you need a referral to a specialist? Do you need a note for work because you, you, you missed work yesterday? This way I can then really decide how I can best help you. So just be as open as possible of what you hope and the very least to get out of of this encounter. Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great point too. It's this idea that I need to understand what I'm trying to get out of it on my end and communicate that. Yes, and if it's just frustration and you need to be heard, that's good to know too, because on more than on many occasions that I find that that's what it can be. And, you know, as an emergency doctor, we don't choose each other. Like you don't choose your emergency um, doctor. And I don't, you know, I just see who's, who's next. And every now and then I'm just, I feel so fortunate that I was um, connected with this one particular person because I was able to, find out what they needed and and provide that even if it is just hearing the the fatigue and hearing the frustration and then me saying I know I mean I really do I know that we don't know how to best help you but let, let's think of some new things or you know it's just it's it can be a, a wonderful experience if you connect well and I think we, you know that's what we should be trying to do Absolutely. I think too, like one of the things that is probably powerful for some of our listeners to understand are some of the areas, Allison, that you've really discovered some major discrepancies or differences in how men and women present. And I wondered if you could talk more about that. 
Sure. One of the most, I was going to say well studied, and that's, that's just kind of um, ironic because it hasn't been studied for so long. But when we think of heart disease, we think of it's the number one killer for both men and women, right? For both. However, women have been really sort of trained to think that breast cancer is their, the thing that they should be concerned about the most. But actually, they're more likely to die of a heart attack and they're more likely to have lung cancer and more likely to die of lung cancer than die of breast cancer. So, so let's, you know, let's think about that. When you compare the outcomes of heart attacks between men and women, women do worse. They are less likely to be recognized. They're less likely to have the diagnostic testing. They're less likely to be on evidence-based treatment, and they're more likely to die before leaving the hospital. So what is going on there? And one of the things that we've discovered is that women have alternate forms of heart disease other than the classic ones that people think of. So when you think of a heart attack, you think of a man clutching his chest, right? That was the picture that we were all given in school. And that's that's what we think of. That's a specific type of heart attack when there's a, um, a uh, thunder there. Ooh, I um, love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just pause for a minute and let it go. Unless you want me to keep going. No, no, it's okay. I mean, I, I kind of love it. I think that's so funny because you said you yeah, yeah. you said you you said you <laughs> listened to corals and corals had thunder in it too, which was really funny. And yeah, it just started getting it yeah. just started getting a little dark over here. But we'll we'll see. We'll see how it goes. So women can have that type of heart attack. They can have a large artery that becomes blocked suddenly. Um, they may not feel like that. They may feel more fatigue shortness of breath. So their body may actually have a different way of uh, signaling that that is occurring. And so that is one thing. And I always like to make sure that we say that is not atypical for women. That's that's how women typically present when having a heart attack. So, you know, just having that language where we understand that women may present one way and men may present the other way. Women are not, you know, a subgroup or a typical men. So getting that out of the way. There's other ways that you can have a heart attack. And these other ways are much more common in women. So you can have and the artery actually spasm and close up. You can have there be a rip in a tear of the artery. You can have more disease diffusely of the smaller arteries. Now, these things were sort of known, but they were so less common in men. So those types of alternate forms of having a heart attack were probably in, you know, four to 10% common in men. So they weren't paid a lot of attention to. But when you actually look at it now, and there are some people doing amazing work in this across the country, that these types of heart disease and heart attacks occur at least 40 to 60% more common in women. And so what could be just something small that seems like insignificant um, when you've looked at the male model and that was your entire viewpoint, we've missed some major things that women have been suffering from, like these other forms of heart attacks, like autoimmune conditions, many of the chronic pain syndromes like fibromyalgia and reflex sympathetic dystrophy and chronic regional pain syndromes and TMJ. Those are just names given to 
to a condition that occurs in women a lot, and that we don't really know what's going on at, at the at the true cellular level. And so I, it's time to start really looking at the things that affect women, how they affect women, how they present when they're there, and then what medications can we actually use to uh, specific to their experience around that. It also occurs to me that women, how women communicate is so vastly different from how men communicate. And I'm, I wonder if you, if you have anything to, I guess, offer in that area. Is that, is that true? Like from a, from a doctor's perspective? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So communication is completely based on gender roles. What's an acceptable way to respond when you are in pain? If you broke your wrist, how is a male supposed to respond to that? How is a female respond to that? There's also uh, cultural and ethnic ways that are, are ways of communication that become overlaid into all of that. Women tend to have an emotional response to pain. Pain is a very complicated condition and it's very much tied to the uh, limbic system in the brain. So this emotional overlay, the fact that yes, you might have broken your wrist, but you, you could be crying and seem very anxious about it because you're emotional that you broke your wrist. It's very painful. You could be emotional because you're in so much pain or because now you know you can't do that thing that you were going to do. You need your wrist and all of these things, you know, are going around in the, in the woman's mind. So she seems more uh, anxious and dare I say hysterical. And so what happens is men and women, you know, the healthcare provider, the doctor is going to look at that woman and say, oh, she's anxious. Let me just give her some anti-anxiety medication. My just calm her down when she's anxious because she's in pain. So let's treat the underlying condition and stop thinking that anxiety is the diagnosis. Mm. You can be anxious and still have a heart attack. You can be anxious and still have a stroke or have painful conditions, that sort of thing. So there is this negotiation that occurs with the gender of the patient and the gender of the physician. And one of the studies I, I read was that male physicians tend to turn down the volume of female patients and they're expressing their pain. And so what happens is women sense that and so they turn up the volume. Mm. So now, you know, you're trying to be like, listen to me, I'm really in pain. And so there's this communication negotiation of um, that occurs to try Try to get to a level of, okay, you're in this much pain. And, and so it, it's interesting and it's, and it's very complicated. And, and the more aware I think we are of how these sort of implicit bias that is, is there, the more we will be able to recognize when it's, it's not helpful. I think I'm really starting to understand how many layers and how many just breakthroughs there have to be in this area. I mean, not the least of which is just the, the subject of our health care in this country as it exists, not, not even starting to really scratch the surface of just the, the gender portion of it. There's just there's so much here. 
There is. I mean, gender really does impact your health as well. The society has certain rules that, that, you know, if you're of this gender, you should be, you know, these are the things that you do if you're just this gender. And if you're non-binary, now we need to know how that imparts health. So it is like, it's part of this picture and harder to study. Gender is harder to study than biological sex. And some, some areas like Canada is, is doing a, a great job at really sort of embracing the complexity of studying gender. In the U.S., the NIH has really concentrated on biological sex. And I think that's just because we really needed something that we could uh, begin to measure its impact now. But but all of these things, you know, ha- have some sort of impact into your, your health. Yeah. And what would you say your if you were to kind of look at your longer term vision for your hope for how women's care begins to get integrated into, you know, medical research and everything in the food chain, what's what's your kind of long game here? Like, what do you see as being really, you know, the the holy grail of medicine? That first, we have a, a new line of evidence. So we go back, and look at some of our um, major studies, our major clinical trials that really sort of helped us with major understanding that were done in men and really go back and have a, a new line of evidence of these conditions in women. And then really the outcome is that when you go to the doctor, the doctor looks at you and says, um, asks you, what's your biological sex? And what is your current gender identity? And then thinks of, okay, well, how does that affect your your complaint right now? How does that affect the symptoms of that you're... I know what your biological sex is. So then I know that if you're having a heart attack, you're probably going to present this way. And if you have the opposite gender identity, then you might be acting this way. Or if you're taking hormones, then I'm going to change your medication dosing on this. And if your biological sex is male or female, I'm going to order this test. And the test result, I have to look at the biological sex of that reference range. So for instance, women have lower red blood cells than men on average. So they have lower hemoglobin. A lot of this has been thought to be due to having the menstrual cycle, but it's it, it's not entirely due to that. But so when, when we check a hemoglobin in a man or a woman, we have to look at a specific reference range to see what is normal for that particular biological sex. That should be done with all of our tests, all of our tests that have uh, sex-based differences. We need to look at this. So it's just throughout the whole line and throughout like how your sex affects how you present. What tests should I order based on that? What treatment should I order based on that? What can I tell you um, that you can expect as your outcome or your side effects or your, you know, so that it's just simply ingrained into how we practice medicine. I think we'll get there. Yeah, well, it sounds like with your work, we're off to an, an incredible start because I guess my, my next and final question is, what are some other influences that you've discovered along the way? Or, you know, you had mentioned that, for example, Canada is really, you know, making progress with gender studies. I'm wondering, are there some other discoveries that you've made as a result of digging into this? 
There are people across uh, the U.S. and the world. There is a group, International uh, Gender Medicine Society, that we share lots of um, information. And so the thing that I think is happening most exciting now is that while researchers are looking at alternate forms of heart disease and looking at different mechanisms of pain processes, and there's also differences in influenza and immunity, there, there are people doing amazing, amazing work, like true scientists. One of the things that I'm doing collaboratively with some folks is all, is trying to figure out how to change medical education, health professions education. So we are doing our third summit this September, where we have gathered the country's top curricular leaders, deans of education, both in medicine and dentistry and pharmacy, nursing, and allied health to figure out as these amazing researchers are coming up with all this new evidence, how can we seamlessly integrate this into health professions education so that your dentist knows what to, what dose to mm. give you or, you know, your nurse knows to look for different ways of, of having heart disease and get that EKG soon. And so that has been an, another sort of labor of love because if we have all this evidence, if we're not using it to teach our, you know, our new people, our future healthcare providers, then we'll be even more behind. And working with students, my God, they are totally ready for this. These students, you know, the younger generation, they are aware of biological sex and gender identity and the intersectionality of health and race and socioeconomic status. I mean, they are ripe to take this on. And so so that's been um, one of the other things we've been working hard to do. Yeah, I just heard such a shift in your voice as you said that. You know, it's like you were talking about, I think we'll get there and it feels hopeful. But when you started really talking about the younger generation, I just felt this total shift in terms of really getting that that is so that is so true, right? That there's there's such a deep interest and there's such a level of almost intuitive understanding that this is the direction to head. I love that, again, that this really discovery was in such a fertile place for you as really being in this academic realm that it just was a disguised gift that you started looking in this area and then seeing such a vast, you know, opening, I think, to not only have this conversation, but now bring it through kind of academia of medicine into the various, you know, sectors of our health industry so that we can really start having a conversation that makes a major difference just way across the board here. Yes, thank you for piecing that together, because I I have that experience of, of publishing in academia and conducting research and then teaching and seeing what that's like and then going to a clinical shift and, um, you know, seeing patient after patient. And so I really did start to see how all of those are related and you can't change one without changing them all. Yeah, well, and I just I want to thank you so much just for sharing with us today and also just want to wish you I know I don't need to because I know you're off to a great start, but I'm, I'm just hoping that, you know, so many people who are even hearing this become great allies to you and your work, because I think the more of us that can really, you know, kind of start to 
to dialogue about this, the more we can all make a direct impact, whether it's at our local doctor's offices or in our colleges, in our universities, in our medical schools, dentists, you name it. Like you said, it's really going to take, I think, everybody kind of simultaneously looking at these gender differences to really come to this conclusion that sex matters in this in this way, right? That sex really, and I know we're having a big conversation in the world about, you know, sex and gender and identity. So it's, it's kind of interesting how it takes on a whole new dimension in the realm of medicine and what the unintended impact is when we don't pay attention and what the potential in- impact can be when we really start addressing this and intentionally start to open up this whole new area for discovery. It's just, it's so exciting. So, you know, I just want to again, congratulate you and thanks again. Thank you so much. This was so, so lovely to speak with you. And I'm very grateful that you uh, invited me to have this conversation for your podcast listeners. And so I'm grateful. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome, Allison. And and again, for our listeners, it's Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It. And Dr. Allison McGregor, where can we find your book? I'm sure you're on Amazon. Yes, wherever books are sold, um, <laughs> I like to say. But I do have a, a website, so it's allisonmcgregormd.com. And I have links to all the places that you can purchase the book. And then you can also follow me on Twitter at McGregorMD. Awesome. And I'll be sure to have that in the show notes. So I'm sure we'll, we'll definitely connect for deeper conversation again. But In the meantime, you know, good luck and more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.